0: Please open up your Bibles uh, to John chapter 12 and find verse uh, 37, John 12, beginning at verse uh, 37. If you don't have a Bible, the rushes are coming up and down the aisle right now and they'll pass one along to you. If you don't own a Bible, now you do. This is our our gift. We want to make sure everyone has a copy of God's Word. Uh, John 12, the end of of, uh, this 12th chapter of the Gospel of John is Jesus' last public address. Uh, He's he's not going to speak publicly until he's on the cross and says it is finished. That that will be the last time or the next time that we actually hear him uh, speak publicly. John uh, 13 through 17 is all uh, behind closed doors. It's a private gathering with him and his disciples over the Passover meal. And so this is really Jesus giving his last Push. His, his last declaration of what he wants people to believe about him. How they need to respond to uh, who he is. So we're going to look at John uh, chapter 12. I'm going to begin partway through verse 36 because that's the way uh, the paragraphs are divided in our uh, ESV Bibles. Those who are reading the English Standard Version. It says, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe for they'd love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, "Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I do not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day, for I have not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say, and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. You don't often hear people shout during a scripture reading, but I just think it's appropriate. It says in verse 44, Jesus cried out. I think it's important for us to know that Jesus' last words, the last words that he publicly spoke, he shouted them out. He wanted everyone to hear it. And the message right there is quite clear. It shouldn't be surprising. It's been all over the Gospel of John. He was calling people to believe. He cried out at the top of his lungs, telling people to believe in him. The title for today's message is, They Still Did Not Believe. This this passage, it closes with Jesus giving the strong encouragement to turn to him and to place their faith in him, but it begins with this, this analysis, this, this reflection on the fact that although Jesus had performed so many miracles, the people still did not believe in him. Verse 36 begins by Jesus saying, when, or when it begins with Jesus sort of going off and hiding it says when jesus had said these things he departed and hid himself from them when he had said these things that's referring to everything he had said said in chapter 12 up until this point he had just healed Lazarus. He came riding on a donkey into Jerusalem. People waved palm branches, said Hosanna, declared him to be king. Some Greek people wanted to speak to him. He said, now is the time for me to die. The hour has come. He said, when the Son of Man is lifted up on a cross, then he'll draw all people to himself. And then he said, I am the light. You're only going to have the light a little while longer. And then there will be darkness. And then he went off and hid. Only to reemerge and to say what he cried out in a loud voice. In verses 44 to 50. But as Jesus went off and hid himself, John the narrator takes over and begins to think about why is it that these people did not believe. And so if you're taking notes today, jot this down first off. It begins with an explanation of unbelief. It's an explanation of unbelief. And Verse 37 says, though he had done so many signs before them, so many signs. The Gospel of John records six of them very uh, intentionally. The the water being turned into wine, the lame man by the pool being raised up, feeding 5,000 people, then walking on the water, then healing a man who had been born blind, and then raising Lazarus from the dead. Sign after sign after sign, all of this evidence... Laid out, Jesus was making it clear who he was. And, but John here almost marvels saying, though Jesus had done so many signs, they still did not believe in him. How is he going to explain this unbelief? Well, it begins with human Responsibility. John begins by explaining their unbelief in terms of human responsibility. Verse 37 is really describing that they, they refused to believe. They would not believe. Even though all of the evidence was stacked up for them to prove who Jesus is, they refused to believe it. They were responsible. They themselves Wanted what they wanted. It didn't matter what the evidence said. It didn't matter what the truth was. They were responsible for not believing in him. Tony Merida, a great preacher and pastor down in North Carolina says this. He says, when you read John chapter 12, you realize that their unbelief is unbelievable. And that's just a beautiful way of, of, of Summarizing what John is getting at here. All of these signs, yet they did not believe. and we need, we need to remember this. We need to remember this when we think we've come up with some clever illustration or some particular program or idea to think that, okay, when I share Jesus like this, more people are going to believe in him. I, I've, got, I've figured it out. I've got the formula now. Well, let's not be so overconfident and overzealous here. Jesus was there in flesh and blood. And he was performing miracles left, right, and center. And yet they still didn't believe. How, what, what do you think your formula is going to do? So we, we need to remember this. We, 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 also, we also need to remember, because sometimes we think, well, if I could just have Jesus come and explain it rather than me explain it. If I could, if I could just have a miracle performed at Thanksgiving dinner uh, this, this weekend, then, then my family will believe in him. Well, listen, this doesn't work that way. People are stubborn, and they stubbornly refuse, and they're responsible for that stubborn refusal of believing the gospel. There's human responsibility here. And then John helps us, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, helps us to put these things together by quoting two passages from Isaiah. Do you see in verse 38 it says, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And it says, Lord, who has believed? Then look down at verse 39, therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said in verse 40, he has blinded their eyes. John paints a picture for us here that that, that the causes of unbelief, as he's explaining how unbelief works, he says, yes, there is human responsibility. They they stubbornly refuse to believe the evidence. So there is human responsibility, but also on the other side, there is divine sovereignty. When we think about unbelief and how it works, we have to factor in the human factor. We also have to factor in the God factor. Human responsibility and divine sovereignty. And to do that, John quotes two passages from Isaiah. We don't just want to take these passages out of context. So I want us to turn to those places. So turn with me in your Bibles right now to Isaiah chapter 53. I'll meet you there. Isaiah chapter 53. Towards the end of the, uh, of the Old Testament, before you hit Psalms, you'll come to Isaiah 53. So in John 12, verse 38, he quotes Isaiah 53, verse 1. Do you have it there in front of you? Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That's what John is quoting. And it's this rhetorical question Who's believed the message? Who's believed what they've heard from us? Who has has believed or seen what the arm of the Lord has revealed? Isaiah 53 is a well known prophecy about Jesus, and it begins with this rhetorical question. The answer to the rhetorical question is quite simple Who has believed? The answer is not as many people as we expected. Who has believed what they've heard? Who's believed the things that Jesus has said about himself? Who has believed that the arm of the Lord, the working of God, the power of God, Jesus' miracles? Who's believed his message? Who's believed in his miracles? And the answer to the rhetorical question is not as many people as we would have expected. Then we keep reading Isaiah 53. Let's get the rest of the uh, the context. Oh shoot, I just closed my Bible. All right, bear with me one second. All right, Isaiah 53, verse 2. He, for he grew up before him like a young plant. This is describing Jesus, like a root out of dry ground. He, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. You see, when we think about unbelief, we think about the fact that, yes, humans are responsible for their unbelief. We need to understand this. Nothing can stop God's plan. The rejection of Jesus as Messiah by most of the people at his day, at the time, was all part of God's plan. Unbelief doesn't work against God's plan. Unbelief is part of God's plan. It was planned that he would be despised and rejected. Why? Keep reading verse 3. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. You see, God had a purpose in the unbelief. It was the rejection of the Messiah that put the Messiah on the cross. It was part of God's plan for them to reject him. Because God wanted him to bear the chastisement. To take on the grief. To bring the needed peace. To bring the healing. But that was only possible through the cross. And the cross, they're not going to crucify a Messiah that they believe in. The unbelief was part of God's plan. That's the first quotation from the book of Isaiah. The rejection led to the crucifixion, which was his substitution for us, which led to our salvation. He suffered and died for the sins of the very people who put him on the cross. So Isaiah 53 is the first passage he quotes. Then earlier on in Isaiah is Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 6, notably, are probably the most familiar chapters in the the book of Isaiah. And John brings both of them uh, to light here. We're going to look at what John quotes here. Look Look at Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 10. He says, make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes. Lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. When John quotes this verse, he he, he sets it up by saying that they could not believe He started by saying they would not believe even though they saw all the signs. Then he says, no, 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 they they could not believe. And then he quotes Isaiah 6.10 where Isaiah is being told, go out there and make people's hearts dull. Make their eyes heavy, their ears heavy. Blind their eyes because they they can't see, They, they can't hear. This is is heavy stuff. This is God telling one of his prophets to go and to preach. And the result of his preaching will be not a turning to the Lord, but a greater hardening towards him. Well, let's look at the broader context of this chapter for a minute. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. This is the familiar part of Isaiah chapter 6. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim, each with six wings. With two covered, he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. talk about the throne room of God and his holiness and his greatness and his majesty and these angelic beings worshiping him and Isaiah being convicted of his sin and then this picture of the gospel, the burning coal touching his lips and then God says, I need a missionary and then Isaiah says, here I am and then we close our Bibles and we go off on our day. Not realizing that the call to be a missionary, the call to preach the gospel, to call, the call to point people towards God is a call to suffer. In verse 9... He said, God said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing and do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Verse 10, which we already read, make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy. Blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. So great to see What God's doing at Pearson Airport through our missionary, one of our missionaries, Peter King. And it's so wonderful to have our missionaries up here and share. But listen, the call to be a missionary, there is. There's all kinds of fruit, there's all kinds of encouragement, but there's all kinds of rejection as well. And God was telling Isaiah, these people have hard hearts and they're only going to get harder. There's an old saying that the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. It's not that God was telling Isaiah that he should preach in order to harden their heart. No, no. Human beings, our hearts come pre-hardened. But in the rejection of the gospel, that brings about a hardening. And when... When God says, lest they hear and they turn and be healed, we need to understand, God doesn't wish that any should perish. He doesn't delight in the destruction of the wicked. God is patient and merciful and gracious. But he has a purpose. And in the same way that he had a purpose in the rejection, Isaiah 53 of the Messiah led to led to Christ's crucifixion, which was our salvation, there was also a purpose. It wasn't going to go on like this indefinitely. Look at verse 11. Isaiah knew that. The very question says, Okay, God, that can't be your permanent stance on your people. He says in verse 11, Then I said, How long, O Lord? That's a hard message you just gave me. But I'm going to trust. I trust in your character. I trust in your goodness, God. I know it can't always be that way. So I'm asking the question, how long? Verse 11, he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people. And the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. God says, yeah, there, there will be a time where this hardening is going, to, is going to stop. But he tells Isaiah, listen, it's going to get worse before it gets better. He says, there's an exile coming. Do you see that in verse, in verse 12? The Lord removes the people far away. That's the Babylonian exile. And the destruction of the city. He uses this metaphor in verse 13, like a stump, like this burned out forest that had been totally chopped down and then lit on fire. But then look at the last line of verse 13. The holy seed is its stump. How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? Long enough. Long enough to create the necessary environment for this holy seed or this holy offspring the coming of this offspring it's going to grow have you ever seen that have you ever tried to chop down a tree in your yard and then you see different shoot that it, it just it refuses to die you see these shoots come up that's the image here Is the whole forest is destroyed, it's been burned out, but there's this little glimmer of hope. God says, in the answer to the question of how long, he says, long enough to prepare the way for this shoot to come. For this offspring, this seed. This is the offspring that was promised to Eve in Genesis chapter 3, who would crush the head of the serpent. This is the offspring that was promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, that would be a blessing to all nations so god does have a purpose and there is this pattern of rejection that we see in the old testament isaiah's message was rejected same with jeremiah same with ezekiel i could go listening all of the prophets they were all rejected prison, thrown in pits, taken to other nations, driven out, exiled, whatever it may be. There's this theme of rejection of God's word, but the rejection of God's word does not mean that it's stopping God's plan. It's actually part of God's plan. This offspring would come. Then we head into some familiar tor- territory in the book of Isaiah. Look down at the next chapter, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign behold the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and she shall call his name Emmanuel familiar passage right this is out of the stump out of the destruction that comes from rejecting God's message the messiah is going to be born look at chapter chapter 9 verse 2 those who walked in darkness, the darkness of rejecting God. Those who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. Look at verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. This is the offspring that is coming. As a, as a, the rejection creates the environment for the, for the people to be ready to receive their Messiah. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. That's that same image, right? That's Isaiah 6. The stump and then the offspring of Jesse, the shoot of Jesse. Jesse is David's uh, father. The, The Messiah is a son of David. Look at Isaiah 11 verse 10. In that day the root of Jesse, the Messiah, shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Not just the people of Israel, but the peoples. And then it says, of him shall the nations... Inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. So yes, there is a rejection. Yes, there is an unbelief. Yes, there is a hardening of heart, but there is a purpose. Loved ones, this passage is heavy, isn't it? I mean, this is serious. The reality of what it means for someone to disbelieve in Jesus. the, The images couldn't be more severe. It's a forest that's flattened and burned. That's not a pleasant experience. It's heavy. But listen, it's also hopeful. Because God has this pattern that out of the ashes he does something glorious. That out of the stump the Messiah comes. And he's, Isaiah 11 verse 10 says he's not just a Messiah for the Jewish people. He's a Messiah for the nations. Jesus said himself, when I'm lifted up, when I'm lifted up on the cross, I will draw all men. To myself, all people to my self. And so turning back now to John chapter 12, we see how he uses these two quotations: Isaiah chapter 6 and Isaiah 53. Here's something interesting. Isaiah 53 describes Jesus in the most down-to-earth terms: no majesty, no beauty, and, and yet he was rejected, right? But Isaiah is the complete antithesis. Isaiah 6 is, he's high and lifted up. He's on a throne in, in, in the temple. Angels are, and, and he's rejected. The lowliness of the Messiah is rejected. The exaltation of the Messiah, it just shows the hardness of, of, of our human hearts. That apart from the grace of God, we, we, we spurn the, the lowly Messiah. And we rebel against the highly exalted Messiah. So John gives this explanation of unbelief. Uh, To summarize, let me just show you what's on our statement of faith that you can find on our website. For the sake of space, I removed the 20-something cross-references that are listed. You can look them up for uh, for your own study online. It says, it is God's divine decision to save a person... And it is God's kindness, forbearance, and patience that lead that person to repentance. The Bible also teaches that each person is responsible to embrace or reject Jesus as Savior and Lord. And that God welcomes all who come to him by faith apart from works. Both of these truths, God's sovereignty and salvation, and man's decision to embrace Christ are taught in the scriptures. Their coexistence is a mystery and is completely understood only in the mind of our omniscient God. All glory for the salvation of every believer belongs to God alone. Unbelief. Human responsibility. Divine sovereignty. In the mind of God, those two things work together seamlessly. We can't always see it. We tend to lean more in one direction or in the other but this is a this is something that we need to take to heart personally first off we can't allow our hearts to be hardened to the message of God's word sometimes sometimes we just have we have so much access to the scripture Six or seven different translations of the Bible and study Bibles. We're listening to preachers on the radio. We're podcasting while we're working out. We're, we're reading Christian. We, sometimes we, just, we get so much information. We're not applying it. We're not experiencing the weightiness of it. And our hearts can become callous, can become hard. We need to be mindful of that. Also, we also need to be mindful in how we relate to others. Sometimes we think that if we just keep coming up against a hard heart, we'll eventually break it. Only God can do that. Only God can reverse the effects of a hardening heart. Yes, we share. Yes, we speak the truth. Yes, we show love in practical and tangible ways, but we also get down on our knees and ask a sovereign God to change someone's heart. So in this in this discussion of unbelief and why people didn't respond to Jesus, look at what John says in verse 41. He says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory. Who is he talking about when he says his? He's talking about Jesus. He saw his glory. He saw his glory when he looked ahead to the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. But he also saw his glory when he had that vision of God in the temple. It's Jesus that's high and lifted up. When he heard the voice say, whom shall I send? That was the voice of Jesus who is the word of God. When he beheld the glory, that was Jesus who's the radiance of the glory of God. Hebrews 1.3 Isaiah saw the glory of Jesus, the highly exalted one in the temple, and the rejected, crucified one in Isaiah 53. He saw his glory. Verse 42, even though there is all of this unbelief, it says, Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. I'm personally not really sure what to do with this category of people. I think who's being described here is, is uh, someone like, like Nicodemus. Who came and had questions with Jesus. And then later showed signs of being a follower of Christ. Or Joseph of Arimathea who was also he was a member of the council. But kept quiet. But then when Jesus was crucified he, he provided a burial place for him. And because we know that these people eventually finished well, we can take hope in that. But John does not speak very favorably about them. He says that they're motivated by fear. And he says in in verse 43, they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. May May that not be true of us. But we need to understand that there's a very real temptation here that the Holy Spirit may be speaking to us about right now. What do you love more, the glory of God, the kind of glory that Isaiah saw? Or do you love the glory that comes from approval and affirmation from other people? Are you pursuing the, the glory and the approval of you know, the other kids at school or of your teachers? Are you seeking the, the approval or the glory of your boss or your or your coworkers or your neighbors? Are you just seeking the glory, the overall approval of our society and, and how our media portrays religion and Christianity? Would, what, what is your glory that you are going after? May it not be true of us that we would pursue the glory of man. May we pursue the lasting, life-transforming glory of God. So after this brief aside from the narrator to sort of analyze the unbelief that was taking place, Jesus re-emerges in verse 44 at the top of his lungs and cries out, "Whoever believes in me." In case you were leaning too much in the direction of divine sovereignty, thinking, "Well, what's the point of even sharing our faith?" or "I don't even know if I'm really saved?" And may, I mean I, I mean, I guess God will just decide for me." Listen, that's not, that's, that's not what the Bible teaches. Jesus here, at the top of his lungs, gives an invitation to whoever. He wants everyone to hear it. And so we've had the, the explanation of unbelief. But then this next section is the exhortation to believe. Jesus enthusiastically encouraged, he exhorts the people. Whoever believes... And then he does this by highlighting four things that he's really been saying about himself for the past 12 chapters. It's kind of like a, a summary statement of everything he's been trying to say. He just wraps up into one final paragraph, one last sentence, shouted at the top of his lungs. And he hits these four things, his identity, his light, his judgment, and his gift of eternal life. And we're going to break down these, uh, these four things kind of one by one. Looking at identity, notice what he says in verse 44. Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. Isaiah had seen his glory. That was recorded earlier. Now Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen him who sent me. Jesus is saying that his identity, he's describing his equality with the Father. This is something he's been saying all along. I mean, it started in John 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. The first verse lays it out there, plain and simple. Jesus is God. The Word became flesh. And we have seen his glory. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He is God. John 5.23, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. You can't claim to have this therapeutic, new age, vaguely spiritual belief in some sort of divine presence and yet reject the teachings of Jesus Christ. It, It just doesn't equate. Jesus doesn't doesn't give you any wiggle room. If you deny who Jesus is, then you don't believe in God at all. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen him who sent me. John 10, 30. I and the Father are one. He's stating his equality. But if you go back to John 12, verse 14. 44 and verse 45, at the very end, it says, Him who sent me, Him who sent me. Here's the amazing thing Jesus is fully equal with God, and yet the Father sent him. Jesus went in submission and in obedience to the Father. This is a great example for us. In many aspects of our lives, we have a number of relationships where submission is required. Whether it be within marriage, whether it be within parenting, whether it be within the church, whether it be within the workplace. The New Testament tells us there's all kinds of relationships in which we are called to submit to one another. And whether or not you are in the position of authority and you are calling other people to submit to you, or whether you are in the position of someone who and you have someone in authority over you and you are called to submit, we need to understand that the New Testament tells us where it starts. It starts with equality. That person who's in authority doesn't mean that they're worth more or that they are better or they're more significant or more important. No, that just happens to be the position that they find themselves to be in. And so if Jesus being equal with God could submit within that relationship, we then, knowing that we are equal with all other people, could live in the required relationships of submission in our homes and our churches and in our Uh, In our workplace. So Jesus hammers out his identity in verse 44 and verse 45. Look at verse 46. I have come into the world as light. So that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. His light. Again, all over the Gospel of John, I'm just giving you a handful of examples. John 1, 4 to 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. John 3, 19, the light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. Jesus has come to give us Light, He says here, if, if we believe in him, we won't remain in darkness. Notice how he says the word remain. Darkness is our default setting. The world tells us that the light is within. That's not how it works. Jesus said, I came into the world. The light came from the outside. And has shone in our hearts to show us our sin, to show us our need for the Savior. So that we would no longer remain in darkness. Darkness refers to our, our confusion and our corruption. Our confusion in that we, apart from Jesus, apart from the light, we don't know the meaning of life. We don't know the reality that human beings are equal with one another. These are all things that we have to be taught. And the light teaches us these things. So it has to do with, with our confusion. Why are we here? How did this world come to Where is it all going? Jesus shines light on all of those questions. But he also shows, shines light on our corruption, the fact that we're sinners Confusion is, you know what, I'm just in the dark. I don't really know. We use that phrase. But corruption, we say, you know, those were dark. That was a dark thing you did or a dark thought. That's how we describe evil. And Jesus came to be a light. And it's important for us to clarify something here because sometimes people think that, you know, faith is just, you know, blind. We're just blind walking. It's true. We don't walk by sight. We do walk by faith, but, that, but walking by faith is, doesn't mean that you walk blind. He didn't say, I am the light. Sorry, he didn't say, I am the darkness. He said, I am the light. The light helps us see. And so when we walk by faith, we are walking based on what he has shown us about ourselves and about the world. We're not going blind. We are, we are believing who Jesus is and what he has said. We are following the light. Then he talks about judgment in verse 47. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to the world to judge the world, but to save the world. That's good news, isn't it? He didn't come to, ju- he didn't come to bring judgment. He came to bear judgment on the cross. In in. John 3.17, God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, in order that the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. John 5.22, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, as he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, he has passed from death To life, The judgment that all of us deserve for our sin is death. But if you believe in Jesus and believe that he died to pay the judgment, you pass from death to life. That's what Jesus is saying here. I didn't come to judge the world. I came to save the world. I came to save the world by taking on the judgment that all of us deserve when he suffered and died on the cross. That's the good news of verse 47 about Christ's first coming. But then verse 48 talks about his second coming. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. The last day. That's Christ's second coming. He came once as a lamb to pay the sacrifice. He's coming again as a lion to bring judgment. And the law by which we will be judged will be Jesus' word. The things that he said. The things that he said about lust, looking at a woman with lustful intent is like adultery. Calling your brother, hating your brother uh, is like murder. This will be the standard by which we are judged. Are you ready for that kind of judgment? Loved ones, think about the cross. Think about what Christ has done. He didn't come to judge you. He came to save you. Trust in him now or else you're going to have to give an account. Jesus said again, We will have to give an account for every careless word we have ever spoken, Jesus said. Think about that. Jesus is ready to hit replay on every conversation. On every text um, thread. On everything. Are you ready for that kind of judgment? He says we're going to be judged according according to his word. And then lastly, eternal life. He says, I have not, verse 49, I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. Jesus has been given these words from the Father. He's been sent from the Father, and he's been been sent to give people eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Again, this concept of eternal life is all over the Gospel of John 3.16. We know that one, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John 6.40. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. John 8.51. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Jesus came to die in order to give us life and to give us eternal life and he gives this invitation remember verse 44 him at the top of his lungs whoever believes the it doesn't matter what your background is doesn't matter what your past is doesn't matter what you are doing have been doing doesn't matter what's been done to you or what you've done to others if you believe in him you can receive the gift of eternal life jesus gives this invitation Whoever believes in him, what do you gotta believe? You gotta believe his identity. Gotta believe that he is God in the flesh, that he's the Son of God. Otherwise, his death is pointless. If he was just a mere man, he couldn't die to take away our sin. But if he was God, then he has the power to do that. Do you believe that he is the light? Are you willing to admit that you have darkness inside of you? Thoughts that you've thought, deeds that you've done, words that you've spoken. Are you willing to admit and come to the light that you need a savior? Judgment. Do you believe that when Jesus suffered and died that he bore the judgment that you and I deserve on the cross? And will you receive the gift of eternal life? Don't leave here today. If you haven't made that decision, you need to make that decision today. These were Jesus, this was Jesus' last public address. Who knows what's going to happen this afternoon? This may be your last opportunity to respond to who Jesus is and what he has done for you. And what about those of us who already have? Maybe years ago, maybe months ago, you've chosen to place your faith in Jesus. You believe in his identity, his light, his judgment, and his gift of eternal life. What does that mean for you? Well, first of all, his identity. What does that mean for your identity? If you believe that Jesus is the son of God, what, what are the implications to be found in him? That means that you then are a son or a daughter of God. Are you living out of that identity? Are you trying to carve out some sort of other identity in your, in your work or in your family or your relationships? What about light? Are you walking in the light? Or are you doing what we so often do is try to keep things hidden And try to live one way on one day and another way on another day? Or are you walking in the light? How about judgment? Do you believe that Jesus is the judge? Do you believe that he's coming back and will judge everyone? Or do you feel the need or the impulse to bring judgment on the people around you right here and now? God says vengeance is mine. That's not our prerogative. We we, we don't have that kind of authority. But yet so often in the way that we treat people, we act as though we are their judge, jury, and executioner. But Jesus came not to judge, to save. And he will come again and he will make things right. It's not up to us to be judging other people. And then lastly, the gift of eternal life. Are you living for eternity right now? The way that you're managing your time, the way that you're prioritizing your relationships, the way that you're speaking, the way that you're working, the way that you're spending. Are all of these things showing that you are living for eternal life or that you're living for this life right here? Loved ones, this is is a weighty, weighty passage of scripture. And this this requires a, a serious and sober response from God's people in response to his word. And so let's, let's bow our heads together right now. Let's pray and ask that the Holy Spirit would enable us to respond rightly to what he inspired John to write. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you right now in the name of your Son, and we come Lord, dependent on your spirit to impress these words onto our hearts. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here right now that has not chosen to believe in Jesus, I pray that they would not leave here without doing that. God, I pray that they would be convicted of their sin and their need for a Savior, Lord. And God, I pray for those of us who have accepted you as Savior, who have responded to the gospel message. I pray that we would live it, Lord. That we would embrace the identity that's involved. That we would walk in the light, Lord. That we would refrain from judging others. And that we would live life to the fullest. That we would live for eternity, God. So Father, we pray that you would help us, Lord. All of these individuals in this room, Lord, you know every single one. You can look into every single heart right now, the hearts that are hard, Lord, the hearts that are tender towards you. God, we pray that you would minister to every and to all for your glory in Jesus' name.